0: I'm Frank Jones, I'm an alcoholic <laughs> and I want to thank the uh, committee for uh, inviting me to share here in uh, Oklahoma. It's an honor and a privilege and uh, it's just good to be here I, I got to tell you that uh, the whole time I've been sober since I've been speaking uh, and wherever I speak, uh, this is the first time that I've ever seen the Oklahoma cowboy cheerleader's that's, uh, <laughs> that's new and uh, never seen cheerleaders in an AA meeting before. So, uh, <laughs> I hope you're still doing it next year when Clancy gets here. (laughs) And I I got a question on the countdown before I get started. And and it's not with the alcoholics. It's with the Alanots. I just got a question. And the noise sitting there already with their phone ready to dial. How do we know if they ever slipped or not? I mean, I mean, think about that. Come on now. How how do we know whether they slipped or not? Well, I just thought that's just something to think about. I want to thank this Larry up here for uh, picking me and uh, the other Larry up at the airport and uh, the drive back. And i got to tell you that uh, I've been sober about 26 years and almost 10 months. And coming here from the airport, I've never been so frightened in sobriety. (laughs) And I haven't thought about suicide in a long time, but I thought about jumping out of his car. I'm going to tell you that right now. But his wheels only went off the concrete twice all the way out here. It wasn't bad. Is that a concrete truck, Larry? I I don't know. Let me get a little closer. You can't. It looks like he's towing you. But... uh, And you didn't complain about the handcuffs last night. <laughs> How do you like me now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've had fun at this conference. (laughs) (laughs) Marla, call me. (laughs) And uh, I want to thank Larry and uh, his beautiful wife, Connie, and Marla. They uh, took Larry and I to dinner tonight. We went to, what was it, Bubba Rose or something? What's it? Bubba Rose. Rose. Bubba Rose. Well, whatever the hell it was. It was a great barbecue. It was great barbecue. We had a great dinner, and I enjoyed talking to the folks and everything. And uh, the speakers have been great. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about them. i ain't going to stand up here and talk about Larry and John. <laughs> they had their time in the sun. <laughs> so that, that's it. They both give great talks. It's good to be at an AA function. And uh, I have no reason for being an alcoholic. Now put your hand down, Benoit. <laughs> for God's sakes. There's a slip right there, and she's claiming how many years? <laughs> This can go on a while. I don't run out. (laughs) But I have no reason for being an alcoholic. I mean, look at me. I don't look like an alcoholic. You folks here in Oklahoma look like alcoholics, okay? (laughs) And i got to tell you that I'm glad I stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough to find out some things. You see, when I got here, I used to sit in the back and I didn't pay attention. And I didn't listen to Chapter 5 being read into 12 traditions because they didn't mean anything to me. Uh, my life wasn't unmanageable when I got here, and I wasn't powerless over alcohol. I could outdrink anybody I knew, and I'd run everybody's life that come in contact with me. I couldn't be restored to sanity by any type of God because when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't believe in God. I can't turn my will and life over to something I can't believe in. I'm never going to write that inventory. I'm not going to put on paper the things I've done. I'm not a fool. And I'm not going to have to read it to somebody because I'm not going to write it. I had no defects of character or shortcomings when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not going to make a list of people I had harmed and become willing to make amends to them because I never harmed anybody that didn't deserve it. If that guy in the bar hadn't run his mouth, I wouldn't have hit him in the mouth with a glass of beer or a bottle or something. So it's his fault, it's not my fault. He needs to learn how to act in the bars. If I ended up with your wife or your girlfriend, that ain't my fault. That's your fault. You need to learn how to take care of Because if you can't, I will. And if you left your money in your wallet out and I took it, that ain't my fault. You need to learn to lock your stuff up. I mean, that's how I felt about things. So I didn't do anything to anybody that didn't deserve it and needed to be taught a lesson. Make direct amends. I don't have to. Continue to take inventory, and when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. Nope. If I wait long enough at your program, you'll make amends to me. (laughs) I am not trying to offend anybody in here. I'm not trying to be cute in prayer and meditation. I cannot meditate. I have a hard time meditating. I don't know. I'm just going to be honest with you tonight. It's going to be a little raw, and some of you are going to like it, and some of you ain't. Go home and write about it. (laughs) deal with it, call your sponsor. It'd be, something, be a new experience for you. But I have a hard time meditating. Meditating, they tell me, you get up in the morning and you clear your mind. <laughs> That's when mine's the busiest. I cannot clear my mind in the morning. I cannot get one with God in the world. I can't think about the green grass and the blue sky and get a quiet heart. I can't do that. I'm just being honest with you. If I get quiet with myself and I think, I think about naked women. That's just, I'm just telling you how it is. And then I think about robbing an armored car and taking them down to the Bahamas. Now, I have a God in my life today, but I still today, 26 years, 10 months sober, I have a hard time meditating. Just being honest with you, I'm self-obsessed. Twelve steps as a result of working those other eleven, I'm going to have a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening, and then I'm going to help the alcoholic that still suffers. And when I got here, I didn't care about the alcoholic that still suffered. I didn't care about anything but me. I wanted to shut my head off. I wanted to get calm. I wanted to be out there in that world, making money, driving a big car, living in a big house, having a lot of women, diamond rings and gold chains, and being cool. And I used to sit back there and pay attention to nothing. And I'm glad I stuck around long enough to start doing the things I heard from the other speakers here at this rally. I started to get involved. The more I got involved, the better I felt. When I got commitments at the meetings and started helping out at that meeting, started setting the chairs up, taking the trash out, mopping the floor, sweeping the floor, picking up cigarette butts, I felt better when I left the meeting. When I call my sponsor, and I still do Monday through Friday, I don't care, all I gotta do is call him on Wednesday, but I call that man Monday through Friday. And I got nothing pressing to tell him today, but when I pick that telephone up and I dial his number, and when I hear that man's voice, I feel better. I can't explain it to you. I don't know how to tell you what happens, but when I hear that man's voice, I feel better. By the time I hang that phone up, I am okay. I don't want to come to A meetings. I didn't want to get up at 4.30 on Friday and fly to Oklahoma. This isn't a claim to fame. I didn't want to do that. But something funny happens when I do the things I heard Friday night and and, and, uh, this morning. I get up and just do what I'm supposed to do, and I go to those meetings, and I come to these rallies, and I go to my home group, and I do the things I'm supposed to do and listen to Chapter 5 and the 12 traditions. I listen to the speakers. By the time I leave that meeting, after talking to my friends, I feel better. That's why I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can't explain it. I don't know why I feel better. I just feel better when I leave a meeting. When I work these 12 steps, and I don't want to do that, I don't want to be a good guy, I hear people stand at these podiums and say, I'm a completely different person than when I came into AA. Well, what did you have, a sex change operation? (laughs) How in the hell did you become that? I am exactly the same person that walked in here 26 years ago. The only thing I do today is I try not to act the way I used to act and do the things I used to do. I try to act like a member of Alcoholics Anonymous the way I've been taught here, the way I've been directed by my sponsor and the examples that have been set before me. I try to act like a member of AA. As a result, I don't act and do the things I used to do. And when I do that, I feel better. That's why I do Alcoholics Anonymous. I was born into a great family. I was born in Danville, Illinois. Mom and Dad were married to each other 50 years. They provided a great home for me. I had an ideal childhood growing up. I wasn't abused, mistreated. I wasn't whipped, put in a room, chained to the bed, none of those things. My family wasn't dysfunctional. If it was, when my two brothers and I left home, it got back to normal. (laughs) My dad worked on the railroad. He worked hard. Mom stayed home and raised us boys, and I did everything as a kid growing up. Kids like doing I played Little League Baseball, Pony League. I played football, basketball, run track in high school. I won nine varsity letters, and that's not why I'm an alcoholic. I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I did that inventory. I read that inventory to my sponsor. We talked about my defects of character and my shortcomings, and I found out some things about me. I found out growing up I was a common liar. I just lied. Mom and Dad never taught me to lie. I picked it up on my own. It's easy to lie. When you tell the truth, it's just out there. You can't do anything with the truth. It's just there. But if you're a liar, now you're working it. I've been an airline pilot. I've been a cross-country truck driver. I've been a dentist. I've been a gynecologist. You can be anything you want to be if you're a liar, and I've picked up lying at an early age. Nobody taught me how to lie. I was a thief because it's easier to steal something and walk out of the store, have the item and your money, you're a double winner. <laughs> right there, you just you got it both. I don't want to stand in line and pay for it. Mom and Dad never taught me to steal. I picked that up on my own. I used to steal all the time and give it to people so they'd like me. I cheated. I'm a cheater. I don't want to work hard. I hate work. I'm lazy. Let me copy off of you. L- let me borrow. Lend me. Can I have? I'm a taker. Mom and Dad never taught me that. I picked that up naturally. That's not why I'm an alcoholic. I wanted to be a macho, tough guy growing up. I grew up in the movies with Wild Bill Hickok, Lash LaRue. John. I grew up with all these guys, and those are tough guys, and I wanted to be macho. I used to wear glasses. I was tall and skinny. I was afraid of the dark in high school. I was ashamed of that. I know you guys here in Oklahoma ain't afraid of nothing. I was afraid of the dark. It was terrible. If you catch me on a spiritual down, I'll leave the light on in my hotel room, for God's sake. And I was ashamed of that, and I couldn't tell anybody about that. And that didn't make me an alcoholic. My first party at Danville, i was a hot summer night, and all the guys from the ball team were there. And my girlfriend, she brought me over a big iced tea glass full of slow gin with 7-Up in it. I didn't know what slow gin was. I'd never heard of it. I took a little drink of it. It tastes like strawberry Kool-Aid. That's my drink of choice. I love strawberry Kool-Aid and bologna sandwiches. I grew up on them. I still love them today. I took that glass, I chugged that glass of slow gin and seven up down, nothing happened. Nothing happened. I didn't put on a wrinkled trench coat, throw a bottle of wine in a paper bag and shoot the skid row. I didn't talk to my high school counselor and say, hey, how do I become an alcoholic, man? I want to be in Oklahoma someday. I want to speak to them alcoholics. I didn't do that. I gave, I emptied the glass, I gave it to her, I said, bring me another one, she brought me another one, and I drank that one down. And nothing happened. I didn't get knee-walking, commode, hugging, puking on your dress shoes drunk. I wasn't drinking for the taste of the alcohol or the effect or what alcohol was doing to me or for me. I wasn't doing any of those things I've heard at the podiums. I was drinking for one reason and one reason only. All my buddies at that party were drinking. That's why I drank. I drank because my friends were drinking and I wanted to be like my friends. I wanted to be macho and cool like those guys. They were hugging and munching their girlfriends in the corner. They were dancing and laughing. And I can't do that. I'm standing on the corner with my arms crossed against the wall. I can't ask you to dance. I don't know how. I don't want you to make fun of me. And I don't want to talk to you. You're going to think I'm stupid. And so I thought if I drank like those guys, I could do the things those guys are doing. That's why I drank. I drank to fit in and be a part of. That's all. And I drank almost a gallon of slow gin in about 30 minutes. (laughs) Glass after glass. That was nothing. Nothing. About 20 minutes after I drank that last glass, I found out where slow gin got its name. (laughs) I got drunk as hell. I went into a blackout. I got taken home and I passed out. And the next morning when I come to, I'm puking up everything I'd eat and drink at the party that night. I am sicker than a dog. My stomach's pounding. My head's pounding. I'm sick. And I can't remember how I got home. I didn't know what a blackout was back then in high school. I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and the old-timers snapped me up and told me about blackouts. They said normal drinkers don't have blackouts. I didn't know that. I thought everybody at the party experienced what I experienced. I didn't think anything was different. I'm a kid. And so I I missed three days of school with a terrible hangover. (laughs) I went back to school, and the guys told me about that night. They told me I was dancing. They told me I was laughing and funny, and some guy said something, and I punched his ticket. And when they told me about that night, I felt a part of the guy's. I don't remember any of it, but hell I evidently had a great time. And that's enough for me right there. If you tell me I had a good time, I had it. Now I didn't turn into a blazing alcoholic after that and get the shakes in study hall when I didn't drink. I drank when I could get it. Somebody turned on to nitric acid back there, didn't they? Got a gas leak. But, you know, I just drank when I could get it. It's usually on weekends. When I got drunk, I got in fights because I'm full of fear. I can't tell you about that fear. I don't know that's what it is. And I keep you away from me by being a fighter. And then I steal things and I give it to you so you like me. And I didn't act that way sober only when I'm drinking. I didn't correlate that to anything. I correlated it to having a good time and being cool. Now, two weeks before I'm supposed to graduate from high school, I have this scholarship to go play basketball at this university. But I have a committee in my head. My committee's talking to me. And my committee says, what if you go to that college and you don't make the basketball team? That scared me. What if I don't get grades good enough to stay on that team? Now I'm full of fear. I don't want to go to college and look bad in front of all the adults and the kids that are going to college. I don't want to look like a wimp. And I made a keen alcoholic decision. I quit high school. (laughs) It made sense to me at the time. You can't go to college on a scholarship if you don't graduate. So I quit school, and then I'm drinking with the guys two weeks later, and I'm macho, I'm cool, I know I'm cool, I quit school. I had another keen alcoholic thought. I went down and joined the Marine Corps. No, not if you're a wimp and a wussy. Do not go in the Marine Corps. Go in the Army. That's a home. they turned on me. Start the car, Larry. Got to get out, or to the Navy. Doesn't matter either one. But I joined the Marine Corps, now. I'm 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 on a train going up to Chicago to get sworn in, and I'm full of fear, and I'm homesick, and the train ain't moved yet, and uh, I'm sitting next to a guy with a ducktail haircut, long sideburns. He's wearing a black leather jacket. It's got zippers on it, and chains, and doodads, and you know, this is a macho dude. I want to hang with this dude in Chicago. He's going into Marine Corps and uh, he's drinking out of a little brown bottle and he said, hey, you want some of this? And I, you know, I want to fit in. So I said, yeah, I'll take a hit of it. And he handed me the bottle and I chugged like two or three big mouthfuls of it. It was whiskey. Now, I don't know how you drank whiskey at the age of 17, but I sprayed that crap all over the seats in front of me. <laughs> I had whiskey coming out my nose and my eyes are water and I can't breathe. This guy's looking at me funny. I don't want to be a wimp. And I wiped off my face, and I handed him the bottle, and I said, you know, that's pretty good. <laughs> and he says, you want some more? And I said, I can't breathe right now. I'm having a problem. And I drank to fit in. I drank to be a part of the guys. And we got sworn in up in Chicago and went to Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. And I went through boot camp scared and full of fear and homesick. And I can't tell the other guys in boot camp about that because they're macho guys. They're all older than me. They're 18, 19, 20-year-old. I'm 17. And I had to learn to put a facade out there and act like what I thought a man should act like. And, uh, you know, I struggled and I got through boot camp. And then they put me in the infantry at Camp Pendleton. And then the Cuban crisis happened in 62. And we went down the coast in a convoy and through the canal and went down there for the blockade. And I'm full of fear. We're going to war. And I can't tell anybody about that fear. I don't know, that, I don't know fear. You know, I, I can't explain that to those guys. And I don't want to tell them I'm ashamed of it. Nothing happened there. And we come back through the canal and went to the Far East for 13 months. I packed my gear the first night, and the guy said, Hey, Frank, we're going out in the villa and get drunk. You want to go out with us? And I said, Yeah, I felt a part of the guys. The guy, I've never been in the Ville. I can't wait to go in the Ville. And we go out in the Ville, and there's five or six of us. And we bought a Typhoon 5th of Saki. And uh, these guys are passing that bottle of Saki around there chug-a-lugging it. And they're, you know, they're punching each other and hugging and shit and headlocking each other. They're macho. That impressed me. I liked that. And that bottle got to me, and I chug-a-lugged 2 or three big mouthfuls of it. I don't know how you drank sake at the age of 17. <laughs> I sprayed that crap all over their shoes. And they're laughing and pointing at me, and, and I feel like a wimp. I hate that feeling of feeling like a wussy. And, uh, you know, the bottle come around, I chugged a some more, and I puked it up. I got saki running out my nose. My eyes are watering. And these guys are making fun of me, and I hated that feeling. And I learned something that night in Okinawa. If you're going to be an alcoholic, you can't let looking bad bother you you just got to hang in. You know, I think that's important. And I hung in. And the bottle come around again, and I chugged it, and I kept drinking it and holding enough down. And then finally I held enough sacky down, and something funny happened. I looked at those five or six Marines I was drinking with, and I realized something. These guys are punks. Why am I hanging out with these sissies? I don't know what alcohol did for you. That's what alcohol did for me. And I left those guys. I don't need those guys, I went out drinking on my own. And I'm out in a bar drinking, and I'm shooting pool with a Marine from another unit, and he said something that evidently offended me, and I smacked him in the face with a pool cue. Now, in the movies, it's cool. It looked good. But he's laying there bleeding. They're calling the military police. I don't want to go to the brig. I don't care where you get your relationships. I don't want to go to the brig. I'm full of fear. And I feel bad about doing that, and I know I shouldn't have done it, and I feel bad, and I leave that bar, and I run down the alleys in Anoka, and I go in another bar, and I sit in there, and I order a shooter and a beer, and I drink that down, and the more I drink, something funny happens. I lose the fear of going to the brig. You see, I don't care about picking a tab up when I drink. You see, everything I do when I'm drinking, I have already thought about it, and it's okay. You see, when I drink, my head tells me it's okay to do what you're doing, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. And alcohol makes everything okay for me. I don't care about responsibility. I don't care whose lives I walk through. I don't care whose lives I ruin. I don't care whose stuff I take. I don't care who I do what to whoever. I don't care about being faithful to anybody. I don't care about paying my bills on time. When I drink, I care about me. I am the mighty I am. And if the MPs walk in that bar, they are not taking me alive. We're going to fight it out. That's how I feel when I drink. And then I start bragging to the Marine sitting next to me about hitting that guy with a pool cue. And then I'm drinking and I look down at the end of the bar and there's a nason sitting down there. Now, I'm a sucker for a pretty face. Women have been able to take me for every dime I've got all my life. That's another 12-step program. I would be senior person in that program. And she slid up next to me and she asked me to buy her a drink. And so I bought the young lady a drink. And then she started telling me this sad story about her mom that needed surgery. And it broke my heart. And so I gave her some more money. And her and I trudged the road of happy destiny to her hooch. Now, I'd like to stand here and tell you, we had such a great time that she remembers it to this day. It was over too quick for me to remember it. And then I was embarrassed and I felt like a wimp and a wussy. And when she went to clean up, I stole my money out of her headboard and set her house on fire. It just, no, it made sense at the time. you got to understand. It's AA, for God's sakes. Throw a brother a bone. And I left, and I went back to the barracks and passed out. And the next morning at Reveley, when I come to, I'm puking up everything I'd eaten, drinking the veal that night. I'm sicker than a dog, and I'm in the head throwing up, and the guys are telling me the MPs are looking for who hit that guy. And that guilt and that shame come back and the fear of knowing I'm in trouble and I'm going to get locked up if I get caught come over me and now I'm afraid and I can't tell anybody about that fear of what I did. And then they told me about a fire in the ville. And my father hadn't raised me to act that way. I had never in 50 years he was married to my mom and at no time have I ever heard my dad raise his voice to my mother. And I don't know where those actions came from and I was ashamed of that. And I didn't know how I was going to make that right. I didn't. I I just couldn't believe I had done that. And I opened up my locker that morning. There's a bottle in there with a big red dot on it, and that's called Akadama Wine. And I took that bottle of wine down, I unscrewed it, and I chugged two or three big mouthfuls of it, and I did not throw it up. I drank some more of that wine and went out to formation. And by the time the formation was over and I walked back in that barrack, something funny had happened. My headache's gone. My stomach's settled down. I'm not throwing up no more. I feel pretty good. That's what alcohol does for me. I went right back to that locker, got that bottle of wine out, poured some in a canteen cup, and walked around drinking it. Twenty minutes later, I'm bragging about hitting that guy with a pool cue. I'm bragging about setting that woman's house on fire. When I drink, everything I do is cool. And I became a morning drinker and a daily drinker at the age of 17. All my money went on booze and women in the bars, and I became a bar fighter because I'm full of fear, and I'm too light to fight, and I'm too thin to win. And I developed a technique of ambush, and uh, <laughs> I'd make a stripe, and they took it away from me. And then they'd restrict me to the base and then the barracks. And if you'd have come up to me over and said, you know what, Frank, every time you drink, you get in trouble. Every time you're drinking, you get into something you shouldn't be into. I could give you reasons why my drinking had nothing to do with the problems I'm getting into. I don't know about you, but I could rationalize and justify all my actions when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. If that guy in the bar hadn't have said that, I wouldn't have hit him in the mouth with a bottle of beer. He needs to learn how to talk to people. If the duty NCO hadn't have said shut up and go hit the rack, Jones, I wouldn't have smacked the duty NCO. I'm not stupid. He needs to learn how to communicate with the troops. <laughs> and I could rationalize and justify all of that till I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. The old timers in my home group, they snapped me up and said, if you want to see what the problem is, Slim, go look in the mirror. The 12 steps in that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous are made for you to work, not the people around you. I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to take responsibility for all my actions because when I got here, I was a victim. I was a big victim. And I got in a lot of trouble over there because really the Marine Corps frowns on those actions, even in 1962, 63. And uh, I perceived the cab drivers over there were ripping us servicemen off. I thought their meters were fixed, and, I, and that used to baffle me, but I figured it out. And one night I decided to get my money back from one of them. That's called robbery. And I beat that man's face in with a rock, and he almost died. And I got locked up. And my dad flew from the States to Okinawa, and he met with the commanding general. And I was 18-year-old. And I was facing a lot of time in a federal penitentiary for that crime. And my dad paid for that man's surgery, and he paid for his retirement. He gave that cab company some money. He met with the commanding general. Some deal was cut somewhere. I just didn't want to be thrown out of the wrinkle. It's the only thing I knew how to do. And back then, it ain't the way it is today. And by the time paperwork went through to get me released from that brig and sent back to duty, I spent a year locked up in that brig. If you'd have told me it was behind trying to get money to drink on, I'd have told you that ain't true. Those cab drivers are ripping us off. They let me out of that brig and they sent me to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I went through Illinois on my way over and I met a girl just out of high school and I married her. Took her down to North Carolina with me. She wants me to stay home and be a husband. I can't do that. I'm a bar drinker. I like the intelligent guys and the beautiful women in the bars. <laughs> And so I don't know what you guys would do to get out of the house, but I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd start a fight with that beast and make it look like it's her fault. And then we're having a cuss fight because we're both drinking. And now I can't drink in a noisy place. i got to get the hell out of that house. If she wasn't yelling and screaming and acting that way, I'd stay home. But she is, so I'm out. Now I'm out in the bars drinking. And then some guy will say something, I'll hit him with something, they'll call the Jacksonville police. So I'll leave that bar and I go in another bar. And i got to be validated. I don't feel like a man. And guys like me, I don't know what kind of guy you was, but guys like me gotta be validated with another woman to feel like a man. And so I'd lock eyes with some honey in the bar, and then her and I'd trudge the road of happy destiny to her hooch. And then we do what we gotta do probably to validate both of us, but me for sure. And then I'm laying there sober and up in her bed and I'm starting to think. You should never drink and think. That's just a bad deal. You're not gonna come up with anything positive. And what I'm starting to have when I'm laying there is those feelings you're going to have when you're unfaithful. And I'm having those feelings you're going to have when you're a liar. And I'm having the feelings you're going to have when you're a cheat. And I can't go home and look at that woman now. And so I stop in a bar and have a couple of shooters and a beer. Now what my head says is, this is a guy thing. This is just what guys do. This ain't a big deal. And so I go home and I walk in and she says, where have you been? Now I hate that question. Now i got to lie to her. I wouldn't be a liar if she hadn't asked that question. So it ain't my fault I'm lying. It's her fault for asking that question. Then I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I found out was my wife is none of my business. It's not my job to tell her what to do, what to cook for dinner, how to clean the house. My sponsor told me if you don't like what your wife cooks for dinner, cook your own dinner and shut up about it. Don't ever say anything to her. <laughs> Stop it! For God's sake, you're not even cooking yet. Why are you clapping? Jesus! But if you are, i got a stove in my room. <laughs> you do too, don't you, Larry? Exactly. My sponsor told me that if I didn't like how that house looked, to clean that house myself. He said evidently she's happy with how that house looks. I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous how to be a husband. I had to learn that here because I didn't know how to be a husband. I had to learn from the old-timers in my home group. And uh, then what happened is we had a kid, and I don't know how to treat kids. You see kids cry, and they make messes, and they break things, and they spill things, and they crap in their diapers, and uh, no human should do that. I mean, think about it. Well, maybe we should when we're drunk, but God, we got a reason. And uh, I'd shake her, and i threw her in that crib, and then the wife would start, and we're fighting, and cry. she's crying, the kid's crying, and the only thing that takes the guilt and shame away of being a bad father is a couple of shots of whiskey and a beer. And then I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I found out kids are little people. But that that's what kids do when they grow up. They move things around and spill things and break things, and that's what they do. And I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous from my sponsor and the old-timers. They said the only time you touch your kids is when you are going to put your arms around them and give them a hug. Lower your voice in that house. Don't use that language in the house that you used to use out in the bars. Your wife and kids don't deserve to listen to that filthy language. I had to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous to clean my language up around women and children. Don't make you macho. My sponsor used to get all over me, and then I, now today I hear young people standing around talking, and the guys are using the F word and everything, and, oh, I think, God, I admire them. That really sounds intelligent. <laughs> my sponsor told me when I talk like that around women and children, I'm a mental midget trying to express myself forcibly. And so I had to learn to clean my language up in Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't make me a man to use that kind of language. And I had to learn that here because I didn't know. I thought that made me macho. I had a total misconception of what that word meant. Then I got called into the CO's office one day, and they issued me a rifle with a telescope on it and live ammunition. Sent me across the ocean to a place called Vietnam. Vietnam ain't my problem. It's never been my problem. I am my problem. My problem is standing in the middle of my wardrobe right now. I was over in 67, 68, and uh, I was a sniper. I was with 26 Marines up at Khe Sanh and Kantean, and uh, I'm full of fear, and I can't tell anybody about that fear because I'm ashamed of it. I'd never been in war, so I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to feel like, but I'm ashamed of how I feel, and I can't tell anybody about that fear. And I found out a secret in Vietnam. 151 proof rum. Put that in your canteens and drink it. You're bulletproof and invisible. And that's what I did. Now what I can do is go out on those patrols and do the things I have to do to show everybody how tough I am. And I did a lot of bad things to a lot of people, and I'm not proud of that. But that's just where alcohol allows me to go. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and what I found out here is I can't change those things. I can't undo my past. All I have is right now I put enough nows together I'm going to have a sober tonight. That's it. I can't put enough nows together to undo my past. I know there's people sitting here that'd like to change some things they've done in the past, but we can't do that. What I can do today is try not to treat people the way I used to treat them. Try not to do the things I used to do. Try not to react to every thought or perceived injustice that happens to me. I can't blame people and lash out. I have to learn about the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to learn to live outside these rooms. And I'm not a wonderful human being today because I'm over 26 years sober. I hear old-timers speak in AA, especially our group, and they're floating with God hand in hand about six inches off the ground. I mean, they're beautiful to see because I'd never seen anybody levitate until I came to AA. (laughs) Every once in a while i see them in here, and when I was new, I'd sit and I'd listen to them, and i think, I'll never get that good. They're never late to work. They never have lustful thoughts. They're not greedy. They don't want more of anything. They never yell at their kids. They're just wonderful. And I thought I can never get there because I can't shut my head off. And I'm comparing my head with how they're saying things. And my sponsor came up and he told me, he says, you don't have to be what this group wants you to be. You have to find out who you are and what you are and start working on that. You have to become you again. And I had to find that out. And he says, you've got a lot to work on. In your case, you're an asshole. And I thought, okay. <laughs> and uh, that's just how my sponsor told it to me. He didn't love me till I could love myself. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in AA almost. Well, think about this. Love you till you can love yourself. Name me one. I, this makes me crazy. I'm going to just tell you right up front. Nobody in your entire life can ever possibly love you as much as you love yourself. Take there's just no, But there, there's not that much love in the world. <laughs> I, I don't know about you. Maybe you did. But I didn't do anything out there drinking that was for other people. Everything I did was to benefit me. I am selfish and self-centered, and I don't kid myself about that. I'm abrasive and critical and judgmental. That's just the way it is. I'm not a good husband today because I'm over 26 years sober. I'm not a good father today or a good man today. I'm a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that. There's nothing I won't do for Alcoholics Anonymous. Anything I'm asked to do, I will do it. If it's legal, I will do it. I'll do some things illegal. If it'll keep somebody sober and save I will do whatever I have to do. I never say no to an a request. And that don't make me a good man. That makes me a survivor. That makes me what these guys talked about since this, this rally started. That's what that makes me want to live. Makes me want to have my head quiet. That's why I do these things. It benefits me. And I'm a lot better father and husband and man today than I was 26 years ago. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be a little bit better than I am today, but I can't guarantee that. So there's been things in my life that's changed. I've had bad things, tragic things, great things, sad things, horrible things. The only thing that I have never changed in over 26 years is my commitment to AA. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I still go to at least four meetings a week. I have commitments at those meetings. I, have, I sponsor guys. I do the things I'm asked to do. I call my sponsor. I do what I'm supposed to do in a because I love this program because it keeps my head quiet. It keeps my stomach calm. I can live out there in that world I had a hard time living in. And it's because I come in here and sit down, shut up, and listen. And... Uh, What happened was is I got blown up there during a siege at Quezon and I got wounded, and I come back to the States. I got out of the hospital. I went home, and, you know, what happened was is uh, I'm home, and my wife wants me to stay home, and I want to get out in the bars and drink, and I had a son born to me while I was there. My daughter's growing up, and we're drinking, and we're having that cuss fight again. And I finally told my wife, shut up or I'll kill you. That woman don't believe me. Macho guys do what they say they're going to do. That's what I've always been taught. And I walked in the closet and I got the gun out. I left home for that woman. And I walked back in that kitchen and I said, if you don't shut up, I'll kill you. And she didn't shut up. And when I came here, I didn't believe in God. And you guys told me there's always been a higher power in my life. When I look back over today, I can see that. You see my daughter standing between my legs pulling on me, telling me, don't shoot her mommy. And I'm trying to get the safety off that gun. And it's rusted. I hit a pin at the base of the receiver. And when I pushed the pin in, it was the firing pin. And the gun went off. And a bullet went through my hand and down between my legs where my daughter was standing. And the bullet didn't hit her. And I'm a blessed man for that. I could have accidentally shot and killed my daughter that day because my wife won't do what I'm telling her to do because I'm the boss. Shortly after that, she divorced me. I couldn't believe it. I fired one shot. I shot myself. She took my kids. I drank over that. My head tells me when I'm drinking, I'm a good father. My head tells me I'm a good husband. I don't know what alcohol tells you. It tells me that I'm right. I was a drill instructor in San Diego, and I hazed the recruits and abused them and fought in the bars down there and started carrying a gun, and I'm fighting in the bars. And two and a half years on the drill field, I had this keen alcoholic thought. I volunteered and went back to Vietnam for a second tour. I was in the infantry this time, and all I did was repeat my bad actions from the first time and did a lot of bad things to a lot of people. What alcohol did for me is saved my sanity over there, that's all. Alcohol kept me sane most of the time. I got shot up in an ambush this time. I come back to the States. Marine Corps wants me now, when I get out of the hospital, to come back after lunch. I can't do that. I have to drink now to keep the demons away. So after 11 years active duty, I got out of the Marine Corps. I became a police officer in Southern California. Freeze! I love saying that. <laughs> Does it get you hot? Okay. Way to go, baby. I'm a police officer in Southern California, and I can't tell my partner in the police car I'm afraid of the dark in the alleys because there's demons down there now. And he'll think I'm crazy if I tell him what I think's down there. Before I go to work, I drink. It takes fear away. Now when I'm on the streets and you scare me, I get violent. I was a violent police officer in the city I served in, and I'm not proud of that. Because of Alcoholics Anonymous today, I get to go in the institutions, and I speak in there once in a while, and I make my amends. I tell those guys what I used to be like and what I'm trying to be like today. And I'm not always successful, I've got to tell you that. I know you can't tell I'm intense, but I am. And uh, <laughs> I try not to do those things today, and I try not to act the way I used to act. And Alcoholics Anonymous has afforded me that and the ability to make amends. I got married again when I was a police officer, and she had a, we had a girl, and uh, then we, uh, she got pregnant again, and I don't feel like a man. I still got to be validated. And so uh, I started to have an affair with my partner. I have a female partner. Just I don't care what your preference is. Mine is female. So I have a female partner. Her and I are having an affair, and she found out I got my wife pregnant. She took offense to that, and that woman shot me. And... Uh, <laughs> Who the hell's cackling? There's just no reason to laugh at that. You're a vicious, evil woman. All right, all the women that laughed and got a kick out of it, all you guys, I want you to spot them. Because if they own a gun and you irritate them, they will shoot you someday. So it's all fun and games till you get shot. And then it's just fun and games with a scar on your head. That woman shot me in the head. And I thought I'd rather get gunned down in the police car, I'd resign. And so I left the police department. <laughs> and I got a real estate license. And I made a ton of money. And if you think money will fix alcoholism, if you're an alcoholic of my type, money doesn't fix alcoholism. I made a ton of money in real estate, folks. I bought two new Cadillacs, and I paid cash for those cars. I'm a big deal. I put a house on a quarter acre with my wife and kids. We put a swimming pool in and three old putting green. My kids wore designer clothes. I wore custom suits. and I had diamond pinky rings and gold chains and necklaces. and I had, a, I had an Alano Club starter kit before I ever thought about AA. <laughs> and that none of those things fixed my rage. None of those things fixed my alcoholism. None of those things took away the lying and cheating and stealing. None of those things took away the ego and the self-centeredness. And at the age of 36 years old, I stood there one day and I looked around and everything I'd worked all my life to get was gone. My wife and kids had left me. The house, the car, the jewelry, the clothes, everything I owned was in a cardboard box in the back seat of a stolen car. And that's a hell of a note for a former police officer. I ended up homeless. I ended up on the streets. I ended up passing blood when I went to the bathroom. I got very sick. A woman I would worked real estate with seen me one day wandering the streets, and that woman picked me up, took me to her home, and she cleaned me up and took me to a doctor. That doctor gave me a physical, and uh, they let me go, and I went back to doing what I do. When I got the results in, she found me again and took me back to that doctor, and I sit in his office. And what that man told me that day sitting in his office was this. He said, Mr. Jones, he says, you're addicted to alcohol the way a heroin addict is to heroin. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to die before summer. You have cirrhosis of the liver and a hole in your throat from vomiting all the time. All the things are going to happen to you that happens if you're eating and living and drinking and doing the things I'm doing. And when that man told me I was going to die, what I was flooded with was relief because I'm tired. That's not easy ruining your own life. It's not easy ruining everybody's life around you. It's a lot of hard work. And I stood up and that man said I was going to die and I shook his hand, I thanked him and I left his office. And I went straight to a liquor store, and with the money those people gave me to eat lunch on, I bought me a fifth of whiskey and a case of beer. And I drank as hard and as fast as I could because if alcohol was going to kill me, I wanted to die. To make a long story short, my parents found out I was dying on the streets, and I wouldn't take care of myself, and my parents had me committed. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I hadn't spoke to them in almost four years. If I could have got out of the restraints, I would have went home and rapped to them about it. But when they strap you down, you don't get loose. They had me strapped down. I was pissed. I couldn't believe it. And they pumped me full of vitamin B and magnesium to help with the withdrawals. And some of them I remember and some of them I don't. I remember some of the cramps and the sweats. And I seen little things in the room that wasn't in the room. And, uh, you know, at the end of about 10 days, they unstrapped me from that bed. They dressed me up and they put me in a van and sent me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know why. I'm not an alcoholic. This is the only disease in the world that will kill you, and your head will always blame something else. And I walked into that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's no difference in this conference. Everybody's doing what you were doing here when we arrived. Everybody's hugging, kissing, and shit. I hate that. And they're shaking hands and loving everybody. God! And then all the ladies, their hair's done, their makeup's on right, the guys are all clean, and they're all dressed well. And what I did is I judged you. I know nobody here in Oklahoma judges anybody, but <laughs> doggone it, I judged you. And I realized that you hadn't lived the life I had lived. You hadn't done the killing and burning and stuff I did in Vietnam. You hadn't done the things I had done to two wives and four kids and the people I abused on the streets and the stealing and everything I had done. And what you guys did was you said, Frank, why don't you get your coffee shut up and sit down? And I thought, I'll rip your throat out. And you said, no, there's too many of us. (laughs) (laughs) You ain't ripping anything. Shut up and sit down. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Go to AA if you want to take a drink of alcohol. Go to AA, 90 meetings in 90 days. And I heard that over and over and over. And when I left that meeting, I hated you. I absolutely hated you. I held you in utter contempt. And then I came back the next night because I had to. And you're doing the same thing. And then I looked at you and I realized that the night before I had misjudged you. You hadn't made the money I had made. You didn't have the cars, the jewelry, the clothes, the women. You weren't as hip as me, slick as me, as macho as me. You weren't as cool as me. You guys looked at me and said, Frank, you ain't got any of that shit now. You're homeless. Get your (laughs) coffee, shut up, and sit down. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Go to AA. Go to 90 meetings. And I heard that over and over and over. And i got to tell you. That if you're an alcoholic of my type, I don't know what type of alcoholics you folks are here. Some of you, I do. <laughs> but if you're an alcoholic like me, of my type, what happened to me might happen to you if you don't plug into this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't get yourself a sponsor. Not somebody that will talk to you about your issues. <laughs> your issues don't mean squat. That is just cycle babble from these treatment centers. Show me in the big book where it says write about your issues. It's not in there. It says write a fearless and thorough moral inventory. It doesn't say write about you. I want to do a sex inventory. Where's that at? Get a sponsor that will get you involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Get you involved in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Get you involved in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't, what happened to me might happen to you. If you don't get commitments at these meetings and get a home group. And make some friends in Alcoholics Anonymous and get a higher power in your life. Because, you see, I walked out of that hospital and I was sober as I am standing here right now. And I stood out there in that sun and I started crying. And all the things I had done all my life came back and started sitting on my chest. And all the things I had done in Vietnam and to two wives and four kids, and even with shoplifting as a kid, came back and started choking me out. And I didn't want to take a drink of alcohol. I haven't had a desire to take a drink in over 26 years. I had a desire to commit suicide. I had a desire to take my own life. Where do you go when you're filled with desperation and you don't have a sponsor to call? You haven't made a friend in the meeting that you can talk to. You haven't got a home group that you can confide in. You don't know anything about these 12 steps or the AA slogans. Where do you go when at the end of that tunnel there's no light? And that's called hope. Where do you go when you have no hope? What happened to me might happen to you. I came back to California, found my wife and kids up in Oregon, and we moved into a little uh, garage, not attached to a house, just the building, and a six-acre field. We slept on the floor of that garage. We ate it out of a styrofoam chest, government cheese, and block bologna. And my kids, when we had cereal, they put water on it. And I didn't go to meetings. I don't need you people. You're a bunch of losers and weaklings. I'm macho. I'm tough. I have willpower. I don't need you. I don't need a God. I don't need anything from you. And at six months without a drink of alcohol and no meetings, I'm driving a stolen car on the Hollywood freeway with a 45. I'm looking for work. I have to feed my children. And I'm doing the best I can. And the guy in front of me is in the fast lane, and he's not getting out of the fast lane. And I'm honking at him to get out of the fast lane. Now here in Oklahoma, you may just pull around him, and wave at him and be serene. I'm not. And I at the guy. And I chased him off the freeway. And when he stopped his car, I stopped and I got out with my 45. And I walked up to his car and I put my gun right in his window in his face. And I said, if you ever drive that slow again, I'll kill you. Now, I didn't want a bourbon of water that day. I wanted to take that man's life. Where do you go when you get desperate and full of rage and fear and no hope and you don't have anybody to call and you can't work these steps and you haven't made a friend? What happened to me might happen to you. At ten months without a drink of alcohol and no meetings, no anxiety medication, no antidepressants, no nothing, I'm in a grocery store buying me Pepsi and cigarettes. You don't think I'll buy my children milk for their cereal, do you? I'm selfish. I'm always going to get mine first because I'm a taker. I've been a taker all my life. And I'm standing in line with a Pepsi and cigarettes, and it says ten items are cash only. And I looked at this woman, and my head said, count this lady's items. She's got 13 items. Here in Oklahoma, that doesn't mean anything to you. But I started to get angry. I don't know if you're a thinker. I don't know if you analyze what they mean by that. Did they say that or this? What are those? I'm a thinker. And I started thinking is 12 eggs 12 items? Is four apples in a bag? Is that just apples or is that four more items? Is two half gallons of milk? Is that milk or is that two items? By the time I looked at her crap, she had about 30 items. And now I'm aggravated. I'm angry. I can't back anger off. I don't know about you. And I'm standing there. I can't believe this crap. And this lady broke her checkbook out. And I looked. I said, hey, you can't write a check. It says cash on the sign. And she smiled and said, I'll be through in a minute, Sonny. I said, my name ain't Sonny. I said, I ain't Sonny right this minute, lady. And I said, you ain't writing a check in this line. You're going to have to pay cash. And you got more than 13 items. And then I started yelling, and when I get angry, I gotta touch somebody. That's right, Jen, you're in trouble tonight. It's a lady with 41 years. I took her eggs and milk and I threw the shit all over Alpha Beta. Now that will get four large sheriffs called on you. I didn't want a pina colada right then, I wanted to rip her blue wig off. I hated that old woman. Now, you probably won't get that way. Don't worry about it. That's how I got 13 months without a drink of alcohol and no meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm in an office trying to interview for a job. I need to feed those kids and that wife. I need to get out of that garage. And this guy walks by and he said, Frank, how are you doing? I said, that's a personal question. Why are you prying into my private life? I said, I'll tell you how I'm doing. I don't want anybody in this office to hear about this. And I grabbed that guy by the throat, jerked him on the desk, and I started choking him. And I'm yelling at him, how do you think I'm feeling right now? (laughs) I had a nervous breakdown. That won't happen to you. Don't worry about it. You're tougher than I am. you got a lot more willpower. And i got to tell you how God works in my life when I don't believe in God. There was a guy in my home group in that office that day. He had never been there before ever. And they pulled my fingers off this guy's throat, and they laid this card down. And he said, I know what's wrong with you. But he said, I can't help you. I'm afraid of you. You've got to go see this guy. And they took me back to that garage, and they sent my wife and kids to his wife's house. And I had a gun and some hand grenades and debt cord and shit. I was waiting for the invasion. And they put it all in a box and took it away, and they sent with me. And I don't remember those days, and I just cried. I had taken sobriety in life as far as I could take And at the end of about nine or ten days, they put me in a car and took me down to this man's office, and I sat in his office and I cried. And what that man explained to me that day has saved my life and my sanity, up to and including tonight. This is what he told me. He said, Frank, you ain't had a drink in over 13 months. He said, right this minute, he said, drinking ain't your problem. He said, you got a living problem. And he says you better find a living answer to your living problem. He says you'll probably find that in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said there's a group of people that's walked down that path before you got there. Fall in behind them and do the things they're doing. He didn't tell me to bring the body and the mind to follow. If somebody tells you that and you're new, get away from them. They're trying to kill you. (laughs) Your mind is not going to follow you anywhere except out to some strip bar somewhere. He told me to get into...